Red Salute, welcome to the Manifesting Podcast. On this episode, we're going to continue our discussion about leftist ideology. Specifically, we'll be covering topics like social democracy, reformism, and why electoral politics can seem so appealing to a lot of activists and leftists. We'll talk about the pros and cons of something like social democracy, because there is some good there, but there's also an awful lot of bad, so we'll discuss that at length. We'll also, in tandem with that, be talking a little bit about unions as well. We'll talk about workerism, economism, why unions are mostly good, but why they're limited if we're actually looking to change these systems of exploitation. In the back half of the show, we'll talk a little bit about revolution. We'll talk about protracted people's wars, ongoing protracted people's wars in places like India and the Philippines. Talk a little bit about the history of PPW. And we'll move that conversation into discussing what does a revolution look like in a place like the United States? Now, I know that's a big question that a lot of people are looking into communism, just leftist ideology in general, when we talk about revolutions. It seems like such a daunting task to take on such a powerful state like the United States. And it is. There's, there's no getting around that. Now, this is a topic that is unfortunately a little under-theorized. There is a reason for that, which we'll get into, and I certainly don't claim to be an expert myself on this topic. It's, it's a tough discussion. I don't claim to be an expert on anything, to be quite honest with you. But um, especially this, this is a tough topic to navigate. And again, there's, there's a lot of reasons why. We'll, we'll discuss that when we actually get to it. But I thought it was important to cover it as best we can because it is one of the main questions people have when we're discussing communism. Now, if you want to contact me, if you have questions, concerns, like ANCAP diatribes, you can find me on Twitter at ManifestPod. I do have a Facebook page up now. Just search for Manifesting Podcast. I'm on Instagram. And the show should be on most podcast platforms at this point. I finally got around to submitting this thing to, to Google Play and iTunes. Last I looked, those were all verified and up, so... Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can probably find me. Now, if you want to support the show, which is always greatly appreciated, you can do so at patreon.com slash manifestpod. Now, before I get into the first segment here about electoral politics and reformism, I just wanted to speak briefly on a topic that's been on my mind. Now, when I took my year away from doing the show, I kind of took myself away from... um, a lot of social media platforms as well, specifically Twitter, like leftist Twitter, which can be pretty toxic, as I'm sure many of you know. Now, I know like petty squabbles on leftist Twitter are kind of the name of the game. It's to be expected. But what I wanted to talk about specifically here was just some of the targeting that I see from people who consider themselves communists or activists or revolutionaries. And the extent of their revolutionary activity is getting on Twitter making snarky remarks and taking pot shots at people that are actually out there doing something and organizing and assuming that they're somehow revolutionaries for doing so. It's bullshit. Now, what I'm talking about specifically here is uh, the Red Guards, Red Guards Austin. If you're not familiar with that group, it's not the end of the world. I think the idea of what I'm talking about here will still land. Hopefully it lands. Now, if you disagree with a group politically, you know, hash that out. Have a principled debate with them about the issues you disagree about. That's As communists and revolutionaries, that's what we should be doing. But again, what I see here is a lot of people who, to my knowledge, don't do shit else, but get on Twitter 
and have some sassy remark about either the Red Guards or a different type of organization who are at least out there doing something, who are out there organizing and trying to help people. Now, again, if you don't see eye to eye politically with the Red Guards, that's fine. That's totally fine. Again, have a principled debate, though, because if you consider yourself an activist for just talking shit online, that's just not the case. You're not a communist. You're not a revolutionary. You're just kind of an asshole. So that's my little piece on that. Now, getting away from the nonsense that is Twitter, let's actually jump into the show itself. Again, I want to talk about social democracy, reformism, and electoral politics. Now, I've been going pretty hard on anarchism the last couple of weeks, so I decided to let up on that for a while. Again, it's not like I have a personal vendetta with anarchists or anything of that nature. I just think it's important to have some clarity and coherency if we're talking about having revolutions and all that involves. So this week, again, I want to talk about social democracy. Now, this is this is a more difficult conversation to navigate, I think. It's a more nuanced conversa- conversation just because there is some good that comes along with electoral politics and social democracy. I mean, people's lives sometimes do objectively get better through electoral reforms. It's just the case. The issue we run into here is the permanency of those solutions and also the fact that a lot of times, if you have some victories in electoral politics, people tend to get complacent and assume that this is enough. You know, we'll kind of slowly chip away at the system through electoral reforms. We'll get these these like-minded people elected, and eventually we'll be able to take down the system slowly but surely through things like electoral politics. I think that's why like the Bernie Sanders campaign was so appealing. You know, he spoke to a lot of people's needs and wants. And I think it's important not to just dismiss that out of hand. You know, despite Bernie Sanders' many flaws, which I've talked about on the show before, you know, he supports imperialism across the globe, he still supports capitalism, etc. If nothing else, he was talking about topics that were resonating with people, things like universal health care, things like a living wage. And I feel like he did maybe bring a few people into the political sphere who had otherwise felt disenfranchised. So I think that's a positive thing. You know, we all have to start somewhere in some respects. So electoral politics can be very appealing. Again, you know, you see somebody like Bernie Sanders talking about universal health care. We're like, well, yeah, that would positively affect me and my family. You know, having health care is kind of a nice thing, believe it or not. A living wage, that would also be nice. So, And these are things that can be gained through the electoral system. Again, we can look back on the history and see where people's lives have objectively improved through politics. But we really need to talk about that issue of permanency. Now, you may have well-meaning individuals who have worked extremely hard for decades to get minimal gains to the electoral system, but all of that can be swept away overnight. If you look back at history, you know, fascist dictatorships, even here with like the Trump administration, things that people have worked so hard and so long for can just disappear like that, because that's how the system works. Now, especially if we're talking about something like actually challenging a capitalist mode of production, to assume that we can actually tackle that issue and bring down the capitalist system through electoral politics is extraordinarily naive because let's be honest, the elite, the people that kind of run the show, the people that play the biggest part in these same electoral systems are not going to allow that to happen. They'll tighten ranks, they'll shut it down, they'll sweep away all these reforms. That's why there's such a limitation to electoral politics and even things like social democracy where, hey, we're going to get this socialist in office. 
you know, he's just like us. He believes in these things and he may, he or she may, that's, that's not the issue. It's just the fact that their power is limited. If they get too close to the sun, they will be shut down and these gains will be swept away. It's happened before. It'll happen again. You cannot take down a capitalist mode of production through a democratic system such as the one we have right now. Again, it's just naive. Now, if our intention is to actually challenge and overthrow these systems of exploitation, we have to be serious about the limitations of reformism, of electoral politics, because that's not going to be enough to get where we're going. The answer is, and always has been, a complete overthrow of these systems of exploitation, and that's not something that we can accomplish just through electoral politics, unfortunately. Now, all that being said, Again, if there is electoral reforms that are going to objectively make people's lives better, then I think it's important to support that. Even as leftists, it's important to support that. The goal of, of, uh, of being a leftist again or being a communist, a leftist of any stripe, is to make people's lives better. That's kind of the name of the game. So if we have an opportunity to do that, yeah, let's go ahead and support that and let's do that. But again, we have to have an honest conversation about the limitations of electoral systems, electoral politics, and of social democracy. You know, it has a nice shiny veneer. It sounds really good. It sounds like we can uh, get where we're going without having any violence or a revolution of any type. We can just go out there and protest, elect the right people, and then we're good as gold. But again, unfortunately, that's just not going to work. History proves that. And it's so important to learn from history. This lack of permanency alone really should be enough to make most people consider whether reformism is actually a viable tactic when it comes to challenging the root causes and systems of exploitation. But honestly, that lack of permanency aside, because that may not even be the worst outcome of relying solely on electoral politics. Now look at something like culture in the United States. I'm not breaking any news here when I state that there's been a rightward creep. There's always been a rightward creep in electoral politics. This has been happening for decades. And now you'll hear from liberals and centrists who say that we must find this middle ground with reactionaries and conservatives. The answer is always in the middle there. But you end up trying to find middle ground with monsters, more or less. So you end up debating things that shouldn't even be up for debate in the first place. Things like housing, health care, food, <laughs> basic human necessities. We haven't even won those basic services for humans, so that alone should really tell you how effective or ineffective electoral politics have been. This rightward creep is responsible for something like the outpouring of support that we saw for Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election. A heinous candidate with a ton of blood on her hands, but was somehow seen as the hero that was going to save us from sure doom. This is again why we see people calling Obama a socialist or a communist, even though he oversaw the greatest transfer of wealth from poor to wealthy in human history, oversaw a record number of deportations, not to mention his terrible foreign policy, which has resulted in hundreds and thousands of deaths. This guy's seen as a socialist, as a communist even, and you have liberals who are just fawning over this guy nonstop. You know, I think part of that was a reaction to Trump getting into office. Everybody hates Trump, rightfully so. So saying, well, Obama's certainly better than Trump. Yeah, that may be true. But let's not have this revisionist history about Obama. He oversaw some really terrible shit. He was a part of that, and he's responsible for that. But again, this guy's kind of seen as the left pole just because that is how far right electoral politics have become in the United States. We're losing that war of culture. It's pretty simple. 
So just to put a bow on this talk about social democracy, let's revisit that question of if we actually did get somebody in the office who considered themselves a socialist, let's say it's Bernie Sanders with better views on foreign policy and actually says they want to challenge capitalism. Now that's where we run into a wall. That's the sticking point because capital runs the show, not this candidate. You know, that's just how it works under a capitalist mode of production. So if you did have somebody in office who really did try to challenge capitalism, that would be a crisis to capital. And we see what happens when capitalism crisis. Look no further than the 2008 financial meltdown and really the austerity measures that were enacted shortly thereafter. Now these austerity measures kind of have a twofold outcome. One, even people who are considered middle class in the United States, you know, they started to lose their pensions. Social welfare programs just went by the wayside. Things that keep us afloat just disappeared. Again, these things that people worked so long and so hard to get just vanished overnight. So that's bad enough as it is. But what it does is it also changes the culture. So instead of fighting for further progressive reforms for a more leftist worldview, we're now stuck just trying to fight for shit that we already had. We're scrambling just to get like social welfare back which again, people may have fought decades for, now it's gone. Now that the battle shifts again, instead of taking a more progressive approach and fighting for real progressive ideals, we are fighting for things that we already had, that rightward creep takes hold. Now that's always gonna happen. When capital is in crisis, it goes into crisis mode and it completely shits on the most vulnerable people in the world. So they are fighting for basic survival. That's how it works. That's a major flaw when it comes to relying on electoral politics. It just puts us in a position where we end up trying to fight the symptoms as opposed to the actual disease, to put it succinctly. Now let's move the conversation forward and have a brief discussion about unions. Now many of the main criticisms that we just made about social democracy, we can make similar criticisms when it comes to unions. There are some definite parallels there. Now, unions at their best can be effective tools for at least improving the, the lives and working conditions for the working poor and the working class in this country. But again, just like social democracy, if the goal is to really end exploitation and get at the root causes of exploitation, simply being a part of a union or depending on a union is just not going to be enough. Now, if we're discussing unions, especially in this country, the United States, it is important to talk about their rather racist history that is kind of the elephant in the room. We have to be honest about that. Even the more radical ones like the IWW, but especially the more corporate-friendly ones like the AFL-CIO, do have a really sordid and wretched history when it comes to not only just straight-out excluding people of color from their unions, but kind of using them when it suits their needs and then kicking them to the curb afterwards. You know, we have to be honest that, especially amongst white leftists in this country, Unions like the IWW are kind of propped up as these wonderful radical institutions, and they did do some positive things, there's no doubt about that. But we do have to look at the history of, again, excluding people of color or just flat out using them when it suits their needs. We can't avoid that question. Now, just like our discussion earlier about social democracy, unions can objectively make people's lives better. So as leftists, we want people's lives to get better, so it's important to support that. The problem comes in, just like social democracy, if we're just going to rely strictly on unions and assume that 
gathering together in our workplaces, like starting co-ops. Like if you listen to Richard Wolf's uh, podcast, I'm not trying to shit on Richard Wolf, but you know, starting co-ops, becoming a part of a union, that's not enough to actually change the systems. Again, it may be improving lives, so it's important to support that. Uh, if you are in a workplace and you can join union, absolutely do so. It's important to protect your coworkers. It's important to protect your own ass. And it's important to try to get higher wages if you can. I mean, you're going to be working a job. You might as well get paid more for it, right? But again, we can't rely strictly on unions if we want to change these systems of exploitation. It's just not enough. Another thing to consider is the fact that these institutions are actually organized by capital. So to assume that an institution that is organized by capital is then going to overthrow capitalism is a little bit naive, to say the least. And let's really look at the objective reality of unions, especially here in the United States. Most of these unions are made up of middle class workers who more often than not, unfortunately, are white people. So the revolutionary consciousness of the people within these unions is not going to be that high. Now, like we talked about last episode, where Marx was saying the proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains, but that's often not the case here, case here in the West. That's especially true if we look at the workers that are part of these institutions. Again, the revolutionary consciousness of a middle-class worker who's white and has the benefit of white privilege and is making a living wage, you can't really depend on those people to then go out and spearhead a revolution. The real reason I wanted to even discuss unions in the first place is one like we just talked about. It is important to support them if they're going to objectively make people's lives better. It's important if you have the chance to join a union to do so, because again, looking out for your fellow coworkers is never going to be a bad thing. But I wanted to bring up this discussion mostly because some leftists, uh, communists, especially Trotskyists, will advocate for entryism which is this assumption that revolutionaries can infiltrate these groups, get in there, kind of stir the pot, rabble-rouse, and somehow turn these institutions who, again, are organized by capital into these really revolutionary institutions that are going to spearhead a revolution. Now, that has never worked. That has objectively never worked, and it never will work. So I think it's kind of a silly notion to assume that we can go that route. But it is still, again, something that's advocated by a lot of communists. Again, mostly Trotskyists or Draperites. So I just wanted to talk about that because it's kind of a ridiculous outlook. But again, it's something that a lot of people still believe for whatever reason. That leads us into the last topic that I want to talk about this week. You know, if going to the polls and voting for somebody isn't enough, if anarchism isn't enough, if joining these unions taking this route of entryism and trying to rabble-rouse and turn these institutions into radical institutions, if that's not enough, what is enough? How do we actually have a revolution in a place like the United States or any of the other centers of imperialism? Now, this is such a difficult question to answer, let me tell you. Like, usually I will record these episodes and I'll try to do everything on the same day, just so there's some continuity to the show. Now, this week, that wasn't exactly the case. I did, like, the first 10 minutes yesterday, which would have been Saturday, doing the rest of it today on Sunday so I can release the episode this weekend. Now, obviously, during the intro, I said I wanted to do kind of a history of protracted people's wars. I wanted to talk about PPW in China, in places like India, in the Philippines, and even in Peru, because there's a lot to learn from the PPW in Peru as well, obviously. But I really wanted to talk about how do we have a revolution in, in the imperialist centers, you know, in the metropoles? How does that look? 
I think the reason that it's under theorized and the reason that that's such a difficult question to answer has everything to do with taking a Marxist or scientific approach to revolutions. Now, if we look at protracted people's wars like in China or the global peripheries, we have a history to work with there. We have examples of what's worked, what hasn't worked, etc. So that's the whole point of, of Marxism, again, of taking a scientific approach is to look at these events, learn what they did right, what they did wrong, and then kind of move forward from there. We simply don't have a history of successful revolutions in imperialist countries. The closest example we have to that, which it's, you know, it's not even close to the same as what we're facing today, would be that, that Russian Revolution in 1917 where it's and this is even an arguable point where an insurrection was kind of the name of the game and that's what won the revolution we'll get into that and why that may not actually be the case but again you know we don't have this vast history of revolutions and imperialist nations so it's hard for us to take a scientific look at that and say well this is what must be done this is what must not be done and then move forward now all that being said there is still some space for us to have a little bit of a conversation this week about it to kind of preface that conversation going forward now, to be quite honest with you, I want to do a little more reading on this myself. Now, I read a couple pieces from the PCRRCP, which are really good and kind of specifically about PPW and the metropoles. Obviously, there's a lot to learn from, again, like the, the history of PPW at the global peripheries, like the Communist Party of Peru and Chairman Gonzalo put out some invaluable work on that. But... I think one thing we need to discuss here right off the top, because a lot of people will assume, well, hey, we had that revolution in Russia, you know, insurrection was the, uh, the correct line there. That's how they won the revolution. So we need to apply that here in the metropoles today, because that's the only route. We can't use PPW here. It's just not going to work. I think that's a flawed logic for a few reasons. First of all, we have seen insurrections tried after that October Revolution in Russia, and they all kind of failed spectacularly. So <laughs> we can look at that and be like, well, maybe not. But also, if we look back at that revolution in Russia during 1917, one could argue that that actually was a protracted people's war that started in 1905, and there was kind of this prolonged struggle, and 1917 was just kind of the final event. So was it really an insurrection? I think that's an arguable point, to be quite honest. But one thing we can learn from that is, you know, just like I said before, there's not a history, really, of revolutions in imperialist nations. So we got to change that, right? If we want to have a history to study, we actually have to try and have revolutions, right? If we're going to take a Marxist approach, we need something to work with. So this theory of insurrection, that we just need this prolonged, protracted legal struggle just within the legal bounds and the imperialist nations, I don't think that's going to work because that doesn't get us anywhere. That just leaves us with this germ of a theory that we're never able to really expand on. Where if we attempt to have a PPW in the imperialist metropoles, then we would at least have something to work with. You know, just like a hard science, you have to bring these things into the lab and test them out. The same is true for the revolution. You actually have to have a revolution or attempt to have a revolution if you hope to learn anything from it. Now, I know another hang-up that a lot of people have when they hear about PPW in imperialist countries is they assume that people that are advocating for that are just trying to kind of copy-paste what happened in China and apply that to the conditions we have here, like, say, in the United States. Well, that's obviously not the case. I mean, nobody's calling for, like, peasant armies to take up arms and surround the cities and kind of have this agrarian revolution. 
just because the conditions aren't the same. You know, we have to look at the material conditions of what we're dealing with and then apply these theories as best we can. So it's important to understand what, what protracted people's war actually means and the fact that, again, we're not just trying to copy-paste what was successful in China and apply that here at the metropoles. So really, my plan for the next week or so, or however long it takes me to get the next episode out, is to really study this in depth. Again, I don't want to come at you guys with a, a half-baked theory because I've been guilty of that before. You know, I kind of self-critted myself uh, on my return episode about doing that type of shit. So that's the last thing I want to do. So I hope you don't think this is a cop-out. It's just, it's a tough, it's a tough issue to talk about. And I want to make sure I'm getting what I can correct before I jump on the mic and try to tell you all about it. So that's going to be the episode for this week. I do hope you got something out of it. Again, if you have any like questions, comments for me, just kind of want to shoot this shit. You can usually find me on Twitter at ManifestPod. I am on most of the other social media platforms as well, like Facebook and Instagram. So you can find me there too. If you want to support the show, again, it's very appreciated. It does help me out a lot. You can do so at patreon.com slash manifestpod. So until next episode, red salute. <laughs>